Before we get started in this episode, a quick announcement. As you know, I'm very passionate about acceptance and commitment therapy, and I also run a busy practice in Canberra. We're currently looking for psychologists who are registered in Australia to join our team, who are also passionate about learning about ACT. We provide supervision on a group and individual basis and training around ACT. So if this is you, if you're interested, please express your interest at strategicpsychology.com.au forward slash careers. Look forward to hearing from you. And now back to this episode. Okay, life can be crazy. You're feeling like you're sinking. Just trying to find a meaning. It's time for better thinking. Yeah, better thinking. Time to tune in. Let's go. Welcome back to Better Thinking. My name's Nesh Nikolic, and my guest today is Dr. Fiona Comfort, here to talk to us about social cognition and clinical syndromes with a focus on dementia. By better understanding dementia and other neurodegenerative degenerative diseases. Her research aims to improve diagnosis and prognosis of the disease. Dr. Fiona Comfort holds a master's in clinical neuropsychology from Macquarie University and a PhD in neuroscience from University of New South Wales. She is currently an NHMRC Career Development Fellow, Associate Professor in the School of Psychology, and registered clinical neuropsychologist with APRA. Combining her clinical training in neuropsychology and research expertise in cognitive neuroscience, her work investigates social cognition in clinical syndromes and aims to really understand the diagnosis and prognosis aspects of dementia to remove stigma, understand how to better provide interventions and inform neurobiological neurobiological models for these complex behaviors. I found this conversation exceptionally interesting and was quite optimistic towards the end in that there are lots of things to be hopeful for, in particular, some of the research findings that Fiona's team has looked at and others around the world. And I think it's something that we can all be optimistic about in the aging process. So hopefully you enjoy this as much as I did. Yona, a big thank you for coming onto the show today. Thank you for having me. I like to start a lot of my uh, interviews with the question of, you know, what got you into this space and, and sort of the world of, you know, neurodegenerative you know, diseases and dementia and Alzheimer's and, and the like is is fairly unique in 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 psychology, even though it's very prevalent. Uh, but maybe we can kind of start there. How did you get into this space? Yeah, so I did my undergraduate degree in psychology and my honours in psychology as well, and then decided to go and study my masters of neuropsychology. Um, and that was really out of an interest of you know, trying to understand brain behaviour relationships, but also a real interest in the various different clinical syndromes. So um, in undergraduate, we had heard about um, some of those classic examples in psychology, like HM, who had sort of bilateral temporal lobectomies and the impact on memory. And I just found it really fascinating, these sort of case examples. And then when I was doing my master's of clinical neuropsychology, as part of that program, you do placements in various um, areas and different hospitals. 
And I was doing a placement in the geriatrics ward and we were asked to see a man who I still remember very, very clearly, um, who had been brought in by nuns um, because he was found wandering the streets and at home he'd been hoarding and was really having difficulties looking after himself. Um, and then when we were asked to do the neuropsychological assessment, started doing an interview with him and found out that he had this really fascinating background. He'd done a Bachelor of Arts. He was very, very highly educated, very well read, presented, you know, he was able to have a great conversation. And then when we started doing testing, he actually did really well on testing as well. So there was this real disconnect between, you know, his cognitive performance on things like, you know, his vocabulary, his general knowledge and how he was behaving in everyday life. Um, and, and I found that really striking. It was very different from what we'd sort of been taught in neuropsychology. And at the same, around that same time, I was actually very lucky to um, hear a talk by Professor John Hodges, and he's quite a well-known neurologist. Uh, and he was talking about this syndrome of frontotemporal dementia and talking about how this dementia syndrome, unlike other dementia syndromes, presents as changes in behaviour and personality. And he really opened my eyes in terms of this whole area of research that I had very little knowledge about in terms of these atypical dementia syndromes. And ultimately, the person who I'd seen clinically got a diagnosis of frontotemporal dementia. So actually based on that one person that I saw clinically and that talk that um, I saw, I then went on to do a PhD in the area and, and sort of pursued John Hodges to be my supervisor and to go on and, and research that area. And I've actually stayed researching frontotemporal dementia ever since because I just find it absolutely fascinating, um, this whole area in terms of, you know, where things can go awry in the brain and how that has such an impact on someone's behaviour and personality and really their ability to function in everyday life. Wow, it's quite quite an inspiring thing to see the difference of, of what you would, uh, what, what you're kind of expecting to see from all the literature versus seeing something that's a bit atypical and going, oh, wow, that's fascinating. Why is that coming up? Because you would usually see that if someone's uh, behaviours are a bit disheveled for lack of a better word that they're probably their mind is going to be a little bit disheveled as well in terms of organizing and the like but someone who's able to be quite coherent and in actual fact you know quite quite uh, uh intact in terms of how they think and the like doesn't does, is, is neuro you know they kind of in many ways it's neurotypical uh compared to what you're seeing on the outside so fascinating what are the typical versus atypical signs that you would you know commonly see and obviously every every presentation is different but what would what would you say would be that the typical things that you know one would observe in in whether it's dementia or other degenerative you know diseases mm -hmm. so i like to think of dementia it's an umbrella term and probably mm -hmm. the best way to explain that to people is the same way as cancer is an umbrella term and within that, we have many different subtypes. So you might have melanoma, breast cancer, leukemia, so forth. Dementia is very similar in that it's an umbrella term. And within that, there's different subtypes. So 
probably the most common form of dementia that people would have heard of is Alzheimer's disease. Mm-hmm. And even though people might use those terms interchangeably, they're really not the same. So Alzheimer's disease is a subtype of dementia. And Alzheimer's disease usually affects older adults. So one of the biggest risk factors is age. And again, when people think about Alzheimer's disease, it would usually present as someone having memory problems and in particular, the ability to learn and encode new information. So for example, um, someone with Alzheimer's disease might not remember what they had for breakfast this morning. Um, If you met them briefly, they might not um, remember, you know, meeting you recently. Um, And they can also have challenges in terms of navigation. So they might get lost. Um, They may have some word finding difficulties, but that's sort of the typical profile of Alzheimer's disease. And then as the disease progresses and there's more pathology in the brain, so more of these abnormal protein depositions, Um, that are accumulating in the brain, then more areas of the brain will get affected and more symptoms will emerge. But really in that early stage of the disease, it's predominantly episodic memory that's impaired. If we think about going back to that umbrella term of dementia, there's actually over 100 different subtypes of dementia. So it's really heterogeneous. There's, There's, you know, multiple reasons. And, you know, the different subtypes are defined by the different types of pathology that is depositing in the brain. Um, So, for example, some of the other common subtypes of dementia is vascular dementia, um, and and that's related to where there's um, changes in the brain in terms of the blood flow, which then can lead to specific parts of the brain being affected. Uh, Typically in vascular dementia, you will see changes in people's speed of processing. So they might be slower in terms of how they do things. And they might also show changes in executive functioning. So that sort of higher level thinking. Um, other forms of sort of common dementia syndromes is dementia with Lewy bodies. Um, and, you know, dementia with Lewy bodies is characterised by this um, deposition of, of, of Lewy bodies in the brain. And in terms of the presentation there, people can actually show um, hallucinations is one of the more common features, and they can also show memory problems. Um, So there's multiple different subtypes, and they all have their own different different clinical presentation. Um, In people who, you know, often in dementia, we will think about as another subgroup of younger onset dementias, and that is people who first get the clinical symptoms of dementia before the age of 65. Um, And in this younger onset dementia subgroup, um, while Alzheimer's disease still happens, actually frontotemporal dementia is just as common. And so it's much more prevalent in people um, in their 50s and 60s. And it presents as changes in behaviour as well as changes in language. And so in... in to help me understand this, the umbrella term of, of, of dementia in, in many ways still looks at uh, some type of neurodegeneration, but some of that might be vascular, for example, or, sorry, might be related to the vascular side, which changes the blood flow and therefore 
might impede um, how the brain works and potentially degenerate over time because of blood flow reasons or there's some sort of interrelation there. Uh, but it could be things like uh, you, you mentioned Lewy bodies. Um, I'm not really sure what Lewy bodies are, um, but I'm, I'm assuming it's some some type of compound that that collects over time or some sort of chemical. Well, is that is that what we're talking about? But it's still related to some type of neurodegeneration or in you know, that the brain is not functioning in its atypical sorry in its typical form. Yeah. Yes, yeah, so there is quite a bit of terminology in this area. Yeah, so it, it is tricky. <laughs> um, so clinically, that when we're diagnosing dementia, there's two different um, criteria that needs to be met. The first is that someone needs to have a decline in function in, um, or a decline in cognitive ability from how they were previously. Um, so that could be across a variety of different cognitive domains like memory, but also language, um, executive functioning, visuospatial ability, um, behaviour and so forth. So they have to show a decline. So if, for example, someone had a developmental delay where they'd always had difficulties in memory, for example, or language, they wouldn't meet criteria for dementia because it's always been there. So you need to be mm. able to show a, a, a decline. Um, and it also has to impact on an individual's functioning. So um, even if someone does um, poorly on a memory test, that doesn't necessarily mean they have dementia. It needs to impact on their everyday functioning. So, for example, their ability to work, their ability to um, do things in everyday life, whether that's cook or clean or pay their bills or so forth. So that is what we talk about the term dementia is that sort of decline from previous functioning. Mm -hmm. In terms of why that occurs, that's when we start to think about neurodegeneration. So it's really the reason causing this clinical um, syndrome. And the neurodegeneration in the brain, as you said, can occur for a number of different reasons. And that's why we have all of these different subtypes. So yes, it's possible that you could get neurodegeneration because of vascular changes where blood supply is affected in the brain. Um, or you will see abnormal proteins in the brain. So for example, in Alzheimer's disease, we know that the proteins are amyloid plaques and tau tangles, so neurofibrillary tangles. And they're um, proteins that in people with Alzheimer's disease are seen in abnormally high levels. So they're accumulating in the person's brain. And when you have a lot of this protein accumulating over time, that causes the cells in your brain to die. Um, and that will lead to atrophy or shrinkage of particular areas of the brain, which will then cause the clinical symptoms in terms of the cognitive changes. Does that make sense? Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Just to clarify a little bit more in terms of the decline from previous functioning, uh, is, is that similar to how we might look at it in sort of, you know, regular diagnostics in, in psychology where usually the function has to have, there has to be that kind of impairment in social or occupational it needs to kind of meet a, a functional problem rather than you know maybe it's subclinical because it's not causing you know a, a functional problem is that is 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 that similar in nature or a diagnosis yeah, yeah so it's very similar um so 
it, yes, in, in dementia, you need to have an impact exactly on someone's occupational or social functioning to be considered um, having a diagnosis of dementia. Um, we do also recognise the sort of intermediate stage, which you might have heard of, which is called mild cognitive impairment. Mm-hmm. And that might be where people start to have um, some concerns around, for example, their memory or some subtle cognitive decline, um, but they're still managing to cope with it. They might have sort of compensatory strategies in place. Um, they may still be able to work, but they have some concerns. For some people with mild cognitive impairment, they will go on to develop dementia, uh, but not for everybody. And so there's a lot of um, work being done internationally um, when we're thinking about, for example, developing drugs to target these different dementia syndromes um, because often these drugs may work best in those very early stages. So it's unlikely that a drug is going to be developed um, that will be able to regrow neurons and regrow that um, the brain areas that have been damaged. What's more likely is that the drugs will try and stop that pathology or those proteins in the brain from accumulating. And so um, the best way to do that is to identify people as early as possible. Um, so there, So that's why in addition to the sort of dementia diagnosis where it does have that impact on functioning um, will also recognize a sort of mild cognitive impairment where there's sort of early signs that something might be happening but it's not yet impacting on someone's occupation or social functioning and what what's the current research in terms of the most likely contributors to to this i know it's a large you know, uh, and, and complex and probably doesn't have a, a specific answer, but at least what's our best understanding? You know, obviously we do appreciate, or I believe, and please correct me here, but it is very much an older person's um, disease, so, so, so to speak, that, you know, it's rare. I'm sure there are cases, but it's rare for for it to occur, you know, in someone's 30s. Um, so we kind of see this in the older age. Um, and in many ways, I, it's, it's, it's fairly common, I'm, I'm, I'm assuming, in, in, in those latter years. And early is considered, you know, before 65. Um, but what, what are the contributors? You know, I mean, I'm sure if I did a Google search, you'd, I'd hear lots of strange ideas coming coming forward like you know eating too much sugar or this or that um is there a an i a best guess at the moment what 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 we what are we looking at um that that is at least correlated uh, will have a reasonable correlation um to why people are developing dementia or is that just what happens when things start to decay you know like heart disease in many ways uh, yes, you know, we probably shouldn't eat all the rubbish that we eat and so on and so forth, but I think it, it does decay over time, right? And you do kind of get heart disease. You've got to get disease somewhere, right? Um, and the heart is one place and the brain is probably another place. So um, what, what, what's the current consensus or at least hypotheses? Yes, so that's a very big question. <laughs> um, so the first thing to say is that dementia is complex. So if you think about like COVID-19, for example, is a, you know, that's quite a good example where 
there's been very, very rapid development in terms of understanding the disease, developing vaccinations, developing potential um, you know, treatments, and we've got a lot of understanding on COVID. Um, that's quite different to something like dementia where it's not going to be a single thing. It's not going to be one virus that causes it. Um, so there's going to be multiple factors that are leading to whether a person gets dementia or not. Um, the first thing that we can think about is genetics. You know, are there genetic risk factors? Certainly there is a um, subgroup of people who get dementia because they have a genetic mutation. Um, and that would could be an autosomal dominant mutation, which means that um, if your parent, one of your parents has the gene, you've got a 50-50 chance of inheriting it. Um, so those um, you know, genetic causes of dementia are relatively uncommon. Um, and if people have an autosomal dominant, you know, genetic mutation in their family, it's usually fairly obvious in someone's, um, if you look at your family tree. Um, so you'll be able to clearly see across generations that people have been affected. Um, so again, you know, similar to other um, disorders like um, the breast cancer gene, the BRCA2 gene, you can see a very clear family history. So there are certainly um, cases where it is determined by someone's genetics. Then there's a sort and, of... And they're quite rare and it's fairly obvious that this gene is in this person and therefore they they have a very high possibility of, of um, developing um, because it, it it just tends to, once it's uh, triggered, so, so to speak, um, it tends to express itself that way and and you can see that in a linear sort of way across across uh you know offspring and the like uh but that's quite a small sub group you know that that they're the easy ones to to kind of point the finger at um yes yeah. yes exactly um then there are also genetic risk factors where if you look at the population um there's certain uh, forms of genes that might increase your risk um, and again, probably the one that we know the most about is the APOE gene. And this gene, there's three different versions of it or alleles of it. If you have um, APOE2, it's actually protective. It means that you have a lower risk of developing Alzheimer's um, than in the population. If you have APOE3, it's sort of, you know, the neutral version it doesn't make you particularly at a higher risk or a lower risk and if you have APOE4 it actually increases your um, risk by about 10 times compared to the rest of the population so it doesn't definitely mean you're going to get it but you have a higher risk than um, other people and people might have heard of this um oh what's his name Chris Hems has um just been um revealed that he has this APOE4 um, version of this gene. So it doesn't mean he is definitely um, going to get it, but it increases his risk. Um, so, you know, that is a potentially contributing factor for, for Alzheimer's disease is those sort of genetic side of things. Um, in terms of if other... Those, my, my apologies. Yeah. If someone has that APOE4, for example, mm -hmm. uh, are there any... Uh, 
is anything that that is likely to methylate or or, or, or to you know, trigger apoe4 to then express itself in in uh, you know a dementia form are there certain things that are more likely you know obviously i'm i'm, I'm assuming this you know has to be huge sample sizes and you're trying to control for all sorts of things so it, it, it's almost impossible but is there any understanding in terms of what are those those things on the apoe4 scenario so um with everyone our genetics interact with our environment um, and there's a number of modifiable risk factors that have now been identified so if someone has that apoe4 variant then they have the opportunity to change some of these modifiable risk factors that then may lower their risk. Um, so there was a, a really good review put out by The Lancet a couple of years ago that looked at all of the studies in um, dementia to look at all of the modifiable risk factors. Um, quite a few of them probably aren't surprising, um, because really what is good for your brain is good for the rest of your body. Um, so that's things like eating a Mediterranean diet, um, exercising, you know, staying fit and healthy. Um, there were other sort of more unexpected um, modifiable factors that have really gained a lot of interest now um, in terms of follow-up. So one of those, for example, was hearing impairment. Um, and one of the things that they found was that potentially if someone has a hearing impairment and that's treated, so for example, if someone's given hearing aids, that seems to minimise their risk of dementia. Um, so that's a possible area where, you know, if there are people who have concerns around hearing impairment, that's a really good reason to, to go and get that investigated and, and see if there's hearing aids that are suitable because that can modify your risk. Um, wow. One of the... Yeah, that is. Um, I I can see some connection. Like you know, if I put a narrative to it, you know, it might be that maybe there's a you know overdiagnosis when it might be explained more by hearing. But where you're talking about improving someone's hearing by by hearing aids, you know, maybe there's more stimulation. There's maybe more social interaction. You know, on you know that's more meaningful that there, there there's you know, uh, maybe more meaningful acts by, by virtue of being connected with the world. So you're not stagnating as much. Your your world is becoming larger um, that maybe, you know, stimulates more of the, 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 the brain. Um, I'm just mm. kind of just, you know, hypothesizing, making these things up, but, but it sounds like a reasonable narrative to me. Absolutely. And, and I think your hypotheses are probably on the right track. So, um, I don't know that there's been a lot of mechanistic studies to see exactly what happens, but two of those points that you raised were actually some of the other modifiable factors that have been identified. So staying cognitively engaged um, across the your lifetime. So we know, for example, people who have a higher education um, have a lower risk of dementia. Um so again, thinking about how your brain might actually develop what's called a cognitive reserve, so it's able to sort of deal with some of these pathological changes um, and compensate for them in some way. So, so in having a high education is a good um, modifiable risk factor and really staying cognitively engaged throughout the lifespan. So, um, you know, whether that be 
learning another language or, you know, studying, doing an additional degree, um, anything that you can do to really cognitively challenge yourself seems to be beneficial. And the other aspect that you raised and what's really particularly of interest to me is um, social engagement. So there's been quite a lot of research now showing that um, social engagement um, reduces your risk of dementia and that social isolation could be a potential risk factor. Um, so absolutely, I think it's possible, like you were saying, if someone has a hearing impairment, they may be less likely to participate in social situations, they may withdraw, and then that may potentially um, increase your risk of developing dementia. And we move into that social engagement space and, and it, it it is a fascinating space because I do recall watching a documentary where they, you know, the producers introduce young children into a nursing home environment. And I can't recall exactly whether they checked um, their cognitive, you know, capacity and the like, but certainly from a mood perspective in terms of engagement, the energy levels, how vibrant they they were, um, seemed to transform. And I'm only talking from a documentary because they only show you the little bits and pieces that they like, but it was quite, you know, heartwarming and, and beautiful and even tear-jerking. Um, but, it, but it seemed to me, in particular with with having these little people um, around old people that um, uh, something magical was happening. Um, and I know that wasn't necessarily social in the sense of, you know, two peers talking, but it was certainly social in terms of an older person teaching a young person things about life or a young person walking an old person around to show them something that's of, of, of interest. And there's that, you know, beauty in the innocence and, and uh, teaching and patience and all sorts of beautiful things that were occurring. So um, I know for me that that seemed to spark off a lot of things in my mind going, Oh my goodness, we need to change how we do nursing, you know, n- n- nursing homes and, and how we look after people. How do we stimulate uh, mental cognitive growth, you know, across the lifespan, like, you know, even as, as you're talking about, you know, being cognitively engaged, not only through a formal degree, but for a lifetime, you know, uh, but maybe we can talk about that if, if that's okay. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think that, you know, we all recognize that human beings are social beings, you know, even from an evolutionary perspective, we've lived in tribes we work together, that's really essential to our, our well-being. And I think, you know, it's really remarkable, this research that's coming out now showing how it has such a huge impact on our health. Um, even, you know, I was reading a recent study that looked at things like um, does being married or being in a relationship change your risk of dementia? Um one of the things that came out that was really important was actually having a confidant. So someone that you can, you know, really feel comfortable with seemed to be an important um, factor in terms of reducing your risk of dementia. So there seems to be so many benefits. And I think absolutely what you're saying in terms of how residential care facilities are currently set up um, may not maximise that social engagement. 
Um, so I think, you know, now we're seeing that from not just a, a social well-being perspective, but actually from a real health perspective, being able to facilitate um, social participation is really important. And, and, you know, even potentially has the benefits of being able to keep people out of residential care for longer, being able to help people to live in the community could have not just health benefits, but also economic benefits. And I think it's really important to get that message out that how important social engagement is. Um, it could be just as important as having a healthy diet and exercising, making sure that we're socially connected. Um, I guess the other reason why I'm really um, invested in this area of social participation is because it's very closely related to a large area of research that I do looking at social cognition. Um, so if you think about that um, person I was mentioning right at the beginning who um, performed relatively well on our cognitive neuropsychological tests but seemed to be having a lot of problems um, in everyday life, um, we now know that that is actually because of this domain of social cognition that's affected particularly in um, people with frontotemporal dementia, so that younger onset dementia syndrome that um, I mentioned earlier. So historically, when neuropsychologists have tested people's cognitive ability, they're really focused on memory, language, attention, visuospatial abilities, so, you know, can someone navigate? Can they draw complex images? Um, and what's called executive functioning. So that's things like um, decision-making and planning and so forth. Um, and they had really neglected this whole area of, of skills that we use to participate in everyday interactions. So if you think um, about if you're, you know, having a conversation with someone, you're actually using a whole range of skills. Um, probably most of them are automatic uh, and rapid without you even thinking about them. So, for example, looking at someone's facial expression, you know, being able to judge how they're feeling. Are they happy? Are they sad? Are they bored? You know, should you change the topic? Should you keep going down this track? You know, we rely a lot on people's facial expressions um, and then we'll update our behaviour in response to that. Also things like nonverbal cues, so thinking about understanding body language, um, knowing, for example, how close to stand to somebody. That might change depending on if it's a colleague or your partner. So knowing what is socially appropriate, what the social norms are and how to adjust to those accordingly. Um, understanding that someone else might have a different perspective to ourselves. So I might love grapes and you might love kiwi fruit. Understanding that we've got different opinions and, and think about these things in different ways. So there's this whole complex array of skills um, that support successful social interactions. And what we now know from a lot of research that um that we've been doing and other groups have been doing internationally 
is it's really that area of ability that's affected in frontotemporal dementia. And that is the ability that can lead to some of the impacts on social, on everyday functioning and social participation. So even if someone can tell you, you know, exactly who the prime minister is, they can, you know, explain what all of these different words mean. Uh, They can, you know, process information quickly. If they are poor at understanding how another person is feeling or recognising another person's emotions, that has a huge impact on their ability to participate in everyday life. And I imagine it also has a huge impact on their prognosis if they are uh, find themselves isolated, excluded from social events or unable to engage socially or participate appropriately. Uh, it makes it very hard to to then have the stimulation to offset some of the challenges that they're having. Mm. You know, it's, it's almost like a chicken and, a, and, a, and an egg. Um, some of these factors are, are occurring because of the dementia, but at the same time uh, also excluding them even more. You know, it, 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 it separates them or, or um, distances them, which is a protective factor. Um, hmm. uh, or distances them from protective factors um, and, and, and kind of makes them more withdrawn and insular and maybe adds to how quickly that degeneration occurs. I'm, I'm assuming that dementia goes along with depression quite um, uh, commonly and you know that has its own cognitive impacts and social isolation and the like. Um, am I on the right track there? Yeah, I mean, it's interesting what you say around depression because that's quite variable from person to person. Um, Typically, if someone with dementia has good insight into their um, difficulties that they're having, then that may, you know, be associated with them being depressed and anxious and they might be concerned about going out into social situations. Actually, what we see in frontotemporal dementia is there's very little insight into the challenges that they're having. So even to the extent where uh, someone might come into our clinic, they've seen their GP, they've had an MRI, they might have seen a neurologist, um, lots of people, their family are concerned, they come into our clinic and, and we say, you know, what's going on? Why are you here today? And they might say, oh, you know, I've had a, a this rash I'm hoping like you can have a look at my skin. They just have no idea, no concept that, you know, their behaviour is is problematic, that, you know, there may be some sort of dementia syndrome going on. And that that coupled with these social changes can lead to huge burden for families. So is, what we is see... That, my, my apologies for jumping in. Hmm? Is, is it that they are unaware and the behavioural changes are quite obvious to others? Or they're unaware, but the changes are uh, somewhat mild and they can mask it because they still have the capacity, you know, from a memory perspective, mm-hmm. but maybe not from a social perspective. Which, mm-hmm. uh, which, which way are we going in that conversation? Or, or both, I suppose, both scenarios. Yeah, so actually often the behaviours can be quite marked um so for example um even though the changes can happen slowly where a person declines over a period of time um 
you know, often they can include things like being socially disinhibited. So, for example, someone might um, start swearing, um, they might, you know, behave inappropriately in public. For example, they might, you know, go up and touch or hug or kiss strangers. They might um, eat off other people's plates, um, you know, inappropriate in terms of their manners. Um, they may become very apathetic, uh, so they're just not interested in doing things anymore, sometimes to the point like that person I was talking about earlier where they may not um, shower, they may not eat. Um, they can become quite stereotypical in their behaviours, so have specific routines that they want to do every day. So the behaviour changes can really be quite marked and have a considerable impact on their everyday functioning. Um, and for carers, this is obviously quite distressing. Um, but because um, these they don't have very much insight, often it will take quite a long time for them to be diagnosed. So you might see the, the spouse, you know, taking the person to their GP and saying, you know, look, they're just not the same. They seem really, you know, disinterested in things. They're like more cold. They're doing these strange, inappropriate things. Um, but the, the GP might do a very simple cognitive test with them and say, look, they're fine. You know, they can they know what day of the week it is. They know where they are. They can count backwards. They can read things. They're fine. There's nothing going on. Um, so it can be really challenging for, for family members to deal with and also for them to get a diagnosis. So it, the lack of insight is really part of the disease. It, um, it's not because the, the behaviours are mild and they're masking them. Um, they just aren't aware that what they're doing is, is inappropriate. And if you ask them specifically, they'll, they'll say, oh, you know, everyone else thinks I'm mad, but I'm completely fine. And I imagine it's also very hard for, you know, spouses, loved ones, you know, uh, dependents to walk in to a GP uh, appointment and say, oh, you know, dad has been swearing and he's said these sorts of things because we don't tend to do it. We, we try and do it with a bit more social nuance. Uh, so it might appear to kind of under-report um, because, you know, we're trying to maintain you know, the, the the socially appropriate thing. We don't want to throw the father under the bus in this example. So it must be very hard. And obviously doctors are taught, um, you know, well, an infinite number of things, but the one little thing that they might know, whether it's, you know, in mental health or in dementia or, you know, the various other things is how to do a screening and the screenings are a bit basic. And what you're saying is it needs to be much more, nuanced and comprehensive and some of that social side needs to be considered in terms of their capacity to read other people's you know emotional expressions and to and this is all obviously if it's uncharacteristic of how they were previous um that's now becoming functionally you know a problem or you know whether they're able to have good insight into noticing other people's nonverbal cues um and you know and to modify their their, their mm. position and you know even 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 being able to hold someone else's perspective um mm. that empathy starts to potentially um waver 
Yeah, exactly. And that's why, you know, I'm always very keen to talk about these other forms of dementia. Uh, I think people are, tend to be getting a bit more aware now in terms of um, dementia as a syndrome, um, but still people tend to think of, you know, an older person who might be in a nursing home, doesn't recognise people anymore. Um, but really it's important for people to be aware that there's lots of other ways that dementia can present, um, like, for example, these behaviour and personality changes, um, also changes in language. So, again, um, people might have heard of Bruce Willis recently um, being in the news because of his diagnosis with frontotemporal dementia. Um, and, again, that has been really important for those of us working in this field um, to be able to highlight that, you know, people can show changes beyond memory. So um, people may have changes in communication. They may not understand words anymore. They may not be able to pronounce words anymore. Again, that's a possible sign of dementia. And I think that is what is really challenging for families is they have no idea what's going on. Um, you know, their partner who's always been loving and caring and appropriate, you know, just has started doing some of these uncharacteristic things and then they sort of seem to progressively become worse over time. Um, but it's very hard if you don't have the language around that to say, oh, I think they've got dementia. Um, you know, like you said, if you're going to your GP and saying, oh, they just don't seem as interested in things anymore or, you know, they're swearing a bit more, like it can be very hard to, to explain that in that sort of medical setting. Um so one of the things that we're working really hard on is just to raise awareness so that people know that there are these other, other presentations of dementia. And like you said, if it is uncharacteristic, if it's changing how someone is functioning from how they were before, then, you know, that could be a potential sign and something that's worth following up. It's, it's a lot easier if, if, if someone is disorientated, they've got memory problems, um, you know, all these quite obvious uncharacteristic things versus maybe someone that it's been difficult to live with, but now they're more difficult to live with. That That's, uh, you know, they have kind of been abrupt and a bit challenging at times, but now it's just increasing in, in, in frequency and, you know, they're, you know, less uh, inhibited. Um, and so we, we, it's more of like it's an extension of of some of the challenges that we've had previously, but not quite easily mm -hmm. um, verbalized to a GP to say, hey, these are of a concern. And a GP is probably not going to be alarmed by any of those things mm -hmm. or, or kind of necessarily consider too much beyond that because, you know, it, 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 we tend to kind of be triggered by more pronounced expressions yeah. or, or, or presentations of it. Yeah, exactly. And I mean, to give you some idea of how, you know, the impact of that. So on average, people with frontotemporal dementia from, you know, when their family thinks back, when did we start noticing symptoms to when they get their diagnosis, it's on average around five years. So the family are dealing with this for a long time before they actually get a, a diagnosis. And, and actually we suspect there's probably a lot of people out there in the community who never get a diagnosis, whose family might just, you know, fall away. They might think, oh, you know, 
this is too too difficult. I don't know what's going on. Um, they may lose that sort of um, support network within within their family and the community more broadly, and they may just never get a diagnosis. So, and then when we think um, moving forward about hopefully treatments for these diseases, that five year delay is just um, something that we need to address, and we need to be able to to close that gap so that we can help people earlier. And and what does the research say about that early, you know, intervention uh, pathway, you know, if, if, if caught early, um, you know, what are the sorts of things that are considered, you know, best practice or, you know, I know that every, every dementia is different because it, this is, that's a big umbrella term mm, and, and mm. you know, it might be very, very different if it's a sort of vascular one versus, um, uh, you know, other ones. What was the one that you you uh, uh, yeah. mentioned? Lewy bodies or Alzheimer's or yeah, yeah, that, that, that'd all be a bit different. But early, early yeah. intervention, nonetheless, are, are there? Uh, is there an optimistic side to 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 this in terms of what can be done? Um, you know, because it can sometimes feel like these things are, you know, kind of beyond, uh, mm-hmm. you know beyond supports you know that that it, it, it's a disease and therefore you can't kind of you know re- recover etc we've all seen you know what it looks like at its worst mm-hmm. um, most of us don't really understand what it looks like at its best and hence why five-year delays considerable mm. per- period of time and it's obviously very difficult to get a loved one into a doctor yeah. um, uh, to look at those things yeah no that's a great question so I think, you know, even if you had asked this five years ago, many clinicians probably would have said, I don't think that there's any point doing rehabilitation. You know, this is a progressive disease. Why, you know, what are we really going to do? We're just, you know, um, rearranging the the chairs on the deck of the Titanic. You know, what are we actually, actually doing here? Um but there's actually a lot of research now saying that that's maybe not the case, that people living with dementia can benefit from re- from interventions. So, for example, um, in the sort of more language presentations, there's been a lot of work now looking to see if you can help people um, maintain their ability to communicate through a variety of different interventions, mostly led by speech pathologists. Um, which have shown to be very effective and those interventions have been shown to be maintained for, you know, three, six, 12-month periods. So there's a lot more research uh, looking at specifically targeting um, skills and cognitive abilities that may be affected and thinking about how we can intervene so that we can slow the progression in people. Um, there's also... What, what are those things? What, 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 what would the speech pathologist do? What do they do? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Um, So for people who are having challenges in terms of expressing themselves um, where they might be um, have more like the speech might be stuttered or laboured or effortful or they get tripping up on words, um, they do what's called script training where basically um, if you look at a particular area of interest, I don't know, maybe you're obsessed with um, rugby league, you could 
learn some sort of sentences and scripts around rugby league um, so that you can produce that more automatically. And then when you're in a social situation, maybe you're going to your community group, you're at church or whatever it is that you're doing, when someone says, oh, you know, how are you going? Then you would have this script ready in terms of rugby league so that you could have a conversation with someone um, and you can learn various scripts so that they become more automatic and more well-practiced to help people communicate more easily without that sort of stuttering um, and challenges in terms of expression. In some way, it reduces the anxiety and, and increases the possibility of social participation because if yeah. the opportunity is there, you might still be withdrawing versus being able to engage a bit more if you already have a script as a starter, yeah, as, exactly. a, as a starting point, which then yeah. maybe you know lubricates the conversation a bit and allows you to get away with more, yeah, uh, exactly. more of those opportunities. Wow. Yeah. That's really clever. Um, I, I didn't think about that whatsoever. I'm like, what 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 would a speech pathologist do? It's like, wow, that makes so much sense. Very simple intervention, but amazing. Exactly. Um, and the other sort of classic intervention is when people are having difficulty thinking of the names of things. So um, you, I'm sure, have experienced that sort of tip of the tongue phenomenon where you're like, I know it, but I just can't think of the word. Um, so people with a, a form of frontotemporal dementia called semantic dementia will experience that um, for many, many different um, items and objects. So they just slowly lose vocabulary over time. And so what you can do with very simple interventions, which are basically like word picture matching, um, where you'll have like a photo of a kettle and they'll have to come up with the word kettle and a photo of a toaster and they have to come up with the word toaster. And again, it's practicing, um, you know, many, many trials, but that will help them get over that sort of feeling of like, I know the word, but I can't find it. So it's sort of trying to find compensatory strategies um, to deal with the specific issues that the person is having. And again, um, they've been shown to be quite effective. And also, I guess, very importantly, um, people living with dementia find it very satisfying. So, you know, they are obviously having these challenges in everyday life, but they're very happy um, to do these sort of um, training exercises because they can see the real benefits in terms of being able to maintain their function. And then the ability to communicate then, like you said, improves their quality of life. They can participate more fully. They're more confident in social situations. So, so you know, those sorts of things are, are starting to gather a, a lot more evidence. It, it it seems like it's almost like a rehab, right? You're 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 flexing the cognitive muscle over mm. and over again by by you know doing um, you know recognition of picture and, and and the word, having to put cognitive load to to find the word. You know that can be quite enjoyable from a mastery perspective, and and you know even more importantly from a functional perspective when you can actually see your cognitive capacity improve that's reinforcing and it builds confidence and once again you probably have better recall when you are confident um and you know around around we go um and something like that wow i i can imagine there would be some pretty easy apps that could be developed to you know increase the difficulty level of going from you know a kettle and a cup and a chair through to you know more obscure you know yeah, objects exactly. like 
I don't know. Um, I can't even think of one. There's the tip of the tongue phenomena, right? Um, but so, something that's you know a lot more challenging to to recall because it's not part of a regular day life. Exactly. Yeah. So a lot of the um, programs have actually come from stroke, so from classic rehab settings. Um, and like I said, you know, people just thought there was no point in trying this intermenture. It wouldn't be successful. People wouldn't be able to do it. They'd, you know, be confused. Um, but actually, you know, quite the converse. So people with dementia have found it really beneficial. Um, it has been effective. And exactly like you said, now there's a lot of collaboration with development to be able to roll this out more broadly to people. Well, it's, it's, maybe the evidence is is starting to lean in that direction i know that when and this is probably not a good place to do your research by any stretch of the imagination but i know when i read i think it's called the brain that changes itself norman doidge i think it is, is the author talking about the importance of those first three months of rehab you know how how important but you know inadvertently it maybe sends a message of three months is where you do the work and after that you know you don't have recovery when, when, when in actual fact, you know, three months might be exceptionally important, but ongoing rehab period, just like ongoing training for an athlete is, is, is necessary. Um, yeah. you know, even if you're a peak performance, you just keep, keep at it to maintain. And, and, you know, there are uh, still progress in, in that. And I mentioned, I imagine, particularly for, for dementia, because there isn't a stroke or something involved. It's, it's an actual fact sometimes the flexing of that muscle uh, or you know, cognitive uh, load. Um, and interestingly, might be social uh, cognitions rather than just, you know, executive functioning. Um, mm. Going out and, and stimulating, that makes a lot of sense. Um, uh, I know that even from a nerve perspective, the value of of you know massage uh, in in areas that you know might feel numb or, or whatever it might be just touching those areas as much as you can with a tapping massaging you know pressure etc cetera, etc cetera. all of those things are important not that we necessarily know the full mechanism as to why it's in, it, it, it's important but we definitely know it is important and to stretch your mind to to mm. have that cognitive load Sounds like it's really important, and and from a social perspective as well, a social load, if we can call it that. Um, yeah. Not sure if that's reasonable. <laughs> no, I mean I think that's a really good point, and and I think this is really where that, you know, my research certainly, but also I think research more broadly is moving to in the dementia space. So obviously, there's a huge amount of work being done to understand the mechanisms why someone gets dementia, how can we treat it, what drugs. Are would work all of that basic science is absolutely fundamental to making progress but we also know that you know in Australia at the moment there's nearly 500,000 people living with dementia and if there isn't an intervention um, by 2050 it'll be you know three times the number so there is a really increasing um, number of people living with dementia and for an on average, a person with dementia from when they start get, first get symptoms will survive for around 11 years. So there's this huge opportunity for intervention in that period. And I think that's where there's a lot of research to be done in terms of how can we best support people? How can we maximise quality of life 
how can we help people live in the community for longer? And also we know that, that it has a, an impact not just on the person living with dementia but their families as well. So how can we support family members who are caring for people with dementia, um, reduce the their burden and really, you know, support people during this challenging period? And, you know, I just think that there's a huge amount of opportunity there and a huge number of people who are affected and, and that's where the, the research really needs to focus now. Being in that space of research and, and having looked at, for example, the social factors, what would you like to see as being some of the interventions or where do you feel there's merit in exploring further, doing more research and, and you know, where, where what's your hunch in, in, mm. in terms of, you know, obviously we can definitely see that, you know, the rehab side of you know cognitive load and you know mastery and you know whether it's scripting of 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 a conversation they're all kind of you know useful what do you think you know is is an additional piece um and obviously there are there are many but from that social side what what do you um uh think is a good place to to explore and start looking at yeah, that's a really good question. I mean, we've been doing a lot of focus groups now with um, carers of people with dementia and people with dementia themselves and, and trying to hear from them in terms of what their experience is and where they need help. And I think one of the things that keeps coming out over and over again is that support after diagnosis. So, um, you know, people really say to us, even once I got the diagnosis, then I thought that people would give me all of this information and, and we never really received that. And they just feel like they get sent home without any support or, or network around them. And, and I think that's really, um, you know, something that we need to change. We need to be able to be providing that support, you know, in that post-diagnostic process and really integrating the person with dementia and their family more broadly um, I think part of it is actually raising awareness in the general public as well. So there's currently a dementia action plan that's being put together by the state and federal government um, for the next 10 years in terms of what to focus on for people with dementia and how we can um, improve their quality of life. And one of the aspects of that is looking at inclusive communities and thinking about how as a community we can change to really support people with dementia to live independently and support their families. And, and I think from the social side of things, um, it, it is really going to be a community approach that needs to be taken here. Um, in some ways, you know, while there are efforts to take that rehabilitation approach in the field of social cognition, so for example, training people in terms of how they might um, detect someone's facial expression, detect how they're feeling. And, and, you know, that's something that we could look at in more detail. I think more broadly, this is a challenge for us as a society. Um, and, you know, like what you were saying with some of those documentary programs in terms of um, multi-generational interactions. So, you know, um, having people more embedded in the community rather than, in their own residential mm. care facility with all the pe dementia people living with dementia who are isolated. 
I think that is really where there's a lot of progress to be made. And, and certainly internationally, in the Netherlands, for example, they're looking at changing how um, residential care facilities are set up. So they are more in sort of group home settings where you'll have um, five or six people living together. They'll be responsible still for, you know, cooking food and doing groceries and planning the activities for the day. Um, moving away from that sort of more institutionalised care, I guess, where people have to follow a strict regime and their food's provided for them and they're given structured activities. Um, I think all of those, you know, more innovative ways of providing care, um, you know, really is, is going to help. And I think as a society, thinking about how we can be more inclusive, how we can enable people to be more integrated um, is going to be really, really beneficial from that social participation perspective. It seems it seems quite quite a challenge looking at it from a, a cultural perspective. The cultural shift is, is is potentially a challenging one in that you know it it feels like in 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 some sense we live in quite an individualistic society, um, and and some of the intervention here is is integrating a more social based um, you know community-based, connection-based, where these, you know, re rehab is occurring just because there is engagement rather mm. than saying, here's your program, you know, we'll, mm. we'll set up a an iPad for you and you do A, B and C versus, no, in actual fact, you have a role to play, to continue to play in society. Yeah. Um, and and there's there's routine and you know you've got worthwhile things to attend to there is a social under sorry there's a community understanding of some of your challenges so that um, you're not judged um, and you can continue to participate and and provide you know value to that community um, and and in an enriching way and it, it it's a much more robust way of of you know uh, uh, supporting the vulnerable or, or, or continuing to to value the vulnerable um, rather mm. than, you know, you've got a productive life and then you age and then all of a sudden, you know, we're, oh, we're caring for you versus no, you continue to provide great value. Yeah. No, I think you said that so nicely and that is such a great message. Um, again from our interviews with carers and people with living with dementia they really have said you know the day I got that diagnosis you know the message was you know go and sort out your estate go and sort out your will quit your job because you know that's really the end of you in terms of what you've got to offer and and I just don't think that that's the right message um you know again we can think about other clinical syndromes where the the community approach has shifted and I think that we can really apply that in dementia as well and and absolutely as you said people even with the diagnosis of dementia are still really valuable members of society they've got a role to play they've got um, things to contribute and you know trying to embrace that and I think focusing on quality of life so you know how can we maximize people's quality of life um, how and I think absolutely part of that is is engaging and having that social engagement. Are there any uh, 
programs in the research that you can point to that have done this well you know across across the world where uh you know it's either been applied in a particular way quite structurally or research has looked at how communities have naturally gone out and 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 um supported you know folk that are you know having these types of challenges anything that you can point to that we can learn from mm. So one of the areas that I'm really particularly interested in is um, cross-cultural research and sort of cultural differences. And I think you alluded to that a little bit when you were talking about, um, you know, these multi-generational approaches and the sort of individualistic versus perhaps a more collectivistic approach. Um, I think there is a lot to be learnt in terms of thinking about how other cultures um approach ageing really um, and as part of that these diseases of ageing like dementia um, it's particularly relevant in the Australian context where we do know we have so many people from um, different cultural backgrounds um, so I think it's you know one in five people were born overseas one in three people you know second generation so there's so many um, different experiences and knowledge and I think that's certainly an area that we need to tap into more in terms of how different cultures um yeah focus on these changes in dementia and, and potentially taking um information so one of the things that we've been doing is looking more closely at um people who come from different cultural backgrounds and look at you know whether that changes the actual presentation of dementia do are the symptoms different? Um, is their progression different? Do they have a different trajectory? And seeing what that can tell us in terms of how we can potentially manage this better. Are there any differences with you know among or between cultures? Yeah, well, it's very preliminary research because we were only able to compare people from non-English speaking backgrounds, people from English speaking backgrounds, but born outside of Australia and people who were born in Australia. Um, but we did start to see some subtle differences. So one of the things that we found was that in people from non-English speaking backgrounds, um, they tended to have um, less severe cognitive um, impairment when we looked at the sort of neuropsychological performance. And we think one of the reasons for that is because actually all of that group were bilingual. Um, so we think that they had sort of um, greater cognitive reserve. So when the um, dementia started progressing, they were able to manage that a lot better. Um, so there's certainly evidence that being bilingual um, is very positive in terms of slowing that rate of progression. Um, we also saw some differences in terms of the actual symptoms. So um, the people who were Australian-born tended to have more apathy um, and more changes in sort of motivation, um, whereas the people from non-English-speaking backgrounds um, tended to have more um, changes in eating behaviour. We don't really know exactly why that's the case but we have some hypotheses in terms of why these things might present differently um so, so if you behavior like eating more eating less eating more sugar tends more sugar. to be one of the um 
symptoms of frontotemporal dementia, so like a tendency to prefer sweet foods or high-carb foods, um, and that seemed to be seen more commonly in these um, people from non-English speaking backgrounds. Um, so, yeah, we don't actually know what's going on there in terms of these different symptoms yet, but we have some hypotheses in terms of, I guess, changes in social norms. So if you think, for example, um, you know, a person from Japan in terms of what's socially appropriate, um, that might be quite different to someone from Argentina, for example. So in Argentina, you might be very forward. You might like, you know, kiss people to say hello. Um, people might be more gregarious, whereas people from Japan might be more reserved. You know, something really inappropriate in Japan might be wearing shoes into someone's house, um, whereas that isn't, you know, seen as socially inappropriate in many other countries. And if we think about these changes that are happening um, in your brain in terms of social cognition, maybe that can influence how it manifests so that the actual symptoms that present will be a combination of the changes of what's happening in your brain, but also a product of your culture. And so when we're thinking about how we diagnose these different syndromes, particularly in terms of social cognition changes, um, we think that there might be differences in terms of, you know, what are the key defining features or what are the most obvious features? And so we need to think about that when we're doing international research um, to make sure that we're comparing apples with apples and not apples with oranges. Um, so again, I think that there's a lot of potential there in terms of examining some of these cultural differences and how, yeah, our, our social context, our cultural background, whether we're bilingual, all of these things will also influence the actual presentation of dementia. And is there a hypothesis around why sort of reaching for more sweets, more carbs might be occurring? Um, there's two different hypotheses. One is simply around disinhibition. Um, so possibly, you know, the parts of the brain that are affected in frontotemporal dementia is the sort of frontal lobes of the brain. And often we think of that as our sort of break. So the thing that sort of stops us from doing things if you remove the break, then you might just go down that route of having a preference for more sweet foods or high-carb foods. Um, so that is one hypothesis. There are also some, um, there is another hypothesis that it's potentially around changes in metabolism and that there's more um, autonomic changes or I guess changes throughout the body that are also occurring in these dementia syndromes that might um, be related to the disease process um, and that one of the reasons for that is because we see this very high increase in calories but we don't see the same amount of change in weight as we would expect and so that has led some people to hypothesize that there might be metabolic changes that are happening in these people and that actually their craving for high sweet high carb food might be actually um, part of the disease process um, in terms of changing, yeah, how our how our brain and how our body is metabolizing things. Um, so again, I guess that is research that's really currently underway. There's a lot of people doing work on these sort of metabolic changes um, to investigate whether there is more of a disease-based reason for why this preference in food occurs 
um, or whether it's simply another manifestation of that sort of disinhibited behaviour. So fascinating how many possible areas can be explored in, in, in trying to understand how, you know, this umbrella term dementia shows up, you know, and, and obviously protective factors like, you know, whether it's bilingual or education level, engagement, you know, cognitively and socially. Uh, you know, I've, I've always thought, you know, certainly my, 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 my parents' old age, I've, I've always thought, you know, the importance of keeping them engaged and active and giving them jobs, you know, uh, uh, I I used to look after most of my garden, but now I've you know in many ways passed it over to my dad, and that that's his job. And he doesn't realise that. Well, I mean, I do like to have a nice garden, but uh, uh, you know, part of it is I great I, I get a lot of pleasure in seeing my father active because you know as a retired you know um, older person, uh, there's only so much that you know, he's got to do around the house and, and you know, to give him another project or something to do. Um, plus it's meaningful, you know, he, he does like, you know, serving others and, and, you know, acts of service, very um, uh, European thing, I think as well. Um, I think it does give him a, you know, a sense of enjoyment. And so whenever something happens, I always find him, I'm like, oh, dad, you know, the lawn looks amazing. Thanks so much. And, you know, but, but, I think it's protective. I, mm. I think it, you know it's engaging. It gives him a purpose, and you know, and, and the like. Not that he doesn't have those things, but it adds to it. And I've always thought I've got to keep my parents engaged because you know, as they age, they also lose a lot of social connection, whether it's through you know death or you know mobility issues from themselves or you know their their friends. Um, it starts to dwindle. So their opportunity for social engagement and then those sorts of things just really you know, dramatically decline. Mm. Yeah, I mean, again, there's a lot of research looking at people's social networks changing and and even, you know, um, putting GPSs on people and seeing how far they travel. And you just see this, you know, gradual decline in terms of the the space that people occupy the number of connections they make the number of people they see um but yeah it sounds like your parents are very lucky and I'm sure your garden is very lucky as well by the sounds of it <laughs> it's a good strategy well at least that's the story I tell I tell myself so that you know um I, I can get them to do everything that I don't want to do <laughs> yeah. it's for you mum and dad I, th- th- this is just love <laughs> Yeah, but I think coming back to your point in terms of, you know, there is so much, there absolutely is, and and that is why I love this area of research because, um, you know, while people often think dementia is very depressing and they say, you know, why would you research that? It's horrible. Um, You know, it's actually just so firstly fascinating to understand the complexities of the brain, you know, understand and all of these things that can happen to people. Um, and it and really tells us a lot, I think, about, you know, how the brains are organised and what's important, what influences our health and so forth. Um, but also I just get so much, um, you know, we're, we're very lucky. We have um, a lot of participants and families who are involved in our research 
um, and, and just learn so much from working with them. And, and there's so much more research that can be done. I really feel like, you know, dementia is um, very, very early in terms of what we have to understand. And there's a lot of progress still that needs to be made, but it also means there's lots of opportunities for really fascinating research and, and particularly at these intersections, I think, between you know, neuropsychology and sociology and, you know, cultural differences. And, you know, um, we haven't really spoken about it, but, um, you know, how dementia might fit within like law and the legal system and those sorts of things. So there's a lot of really interesting interactions and and potential research that can be done, Um, you know, around neuroscience, thinking about, yeah, how we can study the brain better, how we can track these changes over time, um, how can we actually measure what's happening in the brain. Um, So, yeah, it's just such a, a fascinating area. I feel really grateful to be be working in this area and the real i think value in 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 all of that is then using that research to inform social policy so that we understand how can we do these things maybe not so much on an individualistic level and maybe some of it is certainly individualistic but but certainly as a you know, collective and and you know being able to understand and 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 maybe shift a little bit not that we we don't understand it but i think we can highlight it some some more that the you know a better way to 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 age uh with dignity and and with value um that uh that can be you know celebrated because we're all leaning in that direction oh you know you and i are not far from one day uh you know just being of age that naturally things are decaying and whether it's our heart that's decaying or our liver that's decaying or you know brain that's starting to to uh, decay i think we deserve as as human beings um to be treated with you know a lot of compassion and nurturing care and also that we are still contributing um uh, members of society in in so many ways you know obviously we're more likely that we're not doing paid employment at that at that time, um, but that's certainly not the only contributing factor. And I, I think the old and and and, and wise, um, you know, is 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 something to be um, embraced. You know, to 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 learn from and 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 also to be to be nurtured because you know it also tells us a lot about who we are as a society. You know how we look after our most vulnerable um and you know yes the young ones but also the the older ones that both can teach us just just as much so um you know really appreciate your work and 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 appreciate your passion um because this is i think an optimistic conversation you know yes disease is always difficult to talk about but um there's a lot of optimism here. here's a lot of opportunity to to you know slow the progression of the disease or, or you know in, in some sense probably lack of a better word but reverse some of those effects you know that that are in the right environment you know with rehab and social integration and, and meaning and value that we might um see people in a very bleak situation and with the right intervention you know optimism and, and uh, you know improvements sort of arise where can people find out more where they, where can they you know read about this more continue the conversation find out about your work where, where, where can we you know continue this 
this, you know, beyond this podcast. Absolutely. Um, yes. Thank you so much for for saying that. And I, I totally agree. I think there'll be so much, yeah, so much happening in the future. So it should certainly be hopeful rather than hopeless. Um, in terms of more information, so um, our group is called Frontier, the Frontotemporal Dementia Research Group at the Brain and Mind Centre at the University of Sydney. If anyone wants any information about frontotemporal dementia, you can go there. The website is ftdrg.org um, or frontier.org. And um, if you're interested in more about uh, neuropsychology, I also have a, a neuropsychology clinic here at the Brain and Mind Centre. It's called the Sydney Neuropsychology Clinic. Um, so if anyone wants to um, find out more information about neuropsychology assessments um, or you're interested in getting one, you can go there. Um, in terms of dementia more broadly, Dementia Australia has a fantastic um, website full of resources. Um, so, yes, you can just Google Dementia Australia and, and they have huge amounts of resources there. So I would highly recommend there to check out more. Um, and I'm also on Twitter, so you feel free to follow me there and chat further. Um, but, yeah, please do get in touch. Yeah, and no, I appreciate you so much and, 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 and I appreciate your work. It's, it's lovely to have pioneers, you know, to continue pushing th these important topics forward and, and people who are passionate. So, you know, I wish you all, all the best and, and hope that, you know, our research as scientist practitioners can, can be used for social policy and, and, and for individual families too, to say there's actually a lot that can be done um, and, you know, we can still live uh, meaningful ways while you know there can be sadness at times but there's still more than, than than just that so you know love your work and yeah i can't can't thank you enough thanks so much for having me it's been great to chat if you enjoyed this podcast please support it by going to itunes and putting a review subscribe share it via social media and tell others about it start a conversation it's listeners like you that make this able and possible and why we bring in these guests to go out and share their knowledge and resources. And just lastly, if you are a psychologist and you want to go out and be part of a bigger team, develop your experience and get into some exciting work, come to strategicpsychology.com.au forward slash careers and reach out. I'd love to hear from you.